Well, you can open your Bibles to Luke 11. We finally got there, and uh, it's, there's some great things in this chapter. We might just die in this chapter. It's so great. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. If you don't have a Bible, then look in the pew in front of you. You'll find one. Robert Morgan, in his historical devotional entitled On This Day, wrote these words concerning what is often referred to as the Fulton Street Revival. The mood of America was grim during the mid-1850s. The country was teetering on the brink of civil war, torn by angry voices and impassioned opinions. A depression had halted railroad construction and factory output. Banks were failing, unemployment soared, spiritual lethargy permeated the land. In New York City, Jeremiah C. Lanthier, a layman, accepted the call of the North Reformed Dutch Church to a full-time program of evangelism. He visited door-to-door, placed posters, and prayed, but the work languished and Lanthier grew discouraged. As autumn fell over the city, Lamphere decided to try noontime prayer meetings, thinking that businessmen might attend during their lunch hours. He announced the first one on September 23rd, 1857, at the old Dutch church on Fulton Street. When the hour came, Lamphere found himself alone. He sat and waited, finally One man showed up, and then a few others. But the next week, 20 came. The third week, 40. Someone suggested the meetings occurred daily, and within months, the building was overflowing. The revival spread to other cities. Offices and stores closed for prayer at noon. Newspapers spread the story. Even telegraph companies set aside certain hours during which businessmen could wire one another with news of the revival. In all these cities, prayer services began at noon and ended at one. People could come and go as they pleased. The service opened up with a hymn, followed by the sharing of testimonies and prayer requests. A time limit of five minutes per speaker was enforced by a small bell when one exceeded the limit. Virtually no great preachers or famous Christians were used. It was primarily a lay movement. Led by the gentle moving of God's spirit, the revival sometimes called the Third Great Awakening lasted nearly two years and ended with 500,000 to 100,000 people coming to Christ. Out of it came the largest outlay of money for philanthropic and Christian causes America had yet experienced, end quote. Mmm, mmm. I lust after that. Eric Russell, in his biography of J.C. Ryle, speaking about the revival in England, talks about where this same revival got started. And it wasn't at Fulton Street. It was actually in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, in 1857. And Russell writes, quote, a revival of evangelical religion in Great Britain in the mid-19th century touched thousands of individuals who joyfully surrendered their lives to Christ. The revival not only changed lives, but also led to a new interest in and the support for missionary work overseas and Christian social work among the poor at home. The beginnings of this religious revival may be traced to Hamilton, Ontario, where towards the end of 1850, Fifty-seven, a gust of divine power swept through the Methodist congregation and hundreds were converted. Within a few months, thousands were attending prayer gatherings at all times of the day and night in New York and other towns on the east coast of North America. Evangelistic and prayer meetings multiplied and the spirit of revival spread westward towards the prairies, end quote. And so it all started For God's purposes in Hamilton, Ontario, wherever that is, in a Methodist church there, that was the epicenter. And it rippled all the way across America and all the way across the Atlantic and all the way through England and Great Britain. And I don't know about you, but that sounds really good to me. 
I would like Calvary Bible Church to be the epicenter of something like that. And you know, a lot of times when we think of revival, we think of people coming to Christ. I mean, that's usually the normal thing. Yeah, if there was revival, a lot of people would come to Christ. But I want you to think about this, that in order to revive something, it has to be alive. Or at least it was alive. You know, somebody has a heart attack. Somebody um, maybe drowns and maybe that person can be revived because they were once alive. But you can't revive a rock. And a lot of times when we think of revival, we think of it as people who don't know Christ coming to Christ. But actually, revival is when people who know Christ start doing what God wants them to do to begin with. And that in turn leads to mass evangelism and prayer, which causes many to come to Christ and grow in their faith. But it always starts with the believers being revived. You can't vive something that's not first living. A revival is about Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit and God's sovereign pleasure in moving upon them that they are so energized, they begin to do what they should have been doing all along. And as a consequence, God moves with great power and many are saved and many are Sanctified, And I am praying for a gust of divine power to sweep over Calvary Bible Church so that many are converted and many are sanctified and many do what they need to be doing as Christians so that the church will become what God wants it to become. And I'd like it to start here. I mean, I'm selfish. But why not? Burbank's as good as on Hamilton, Ontario. And this morning, as we come, I just wanted to give you those few examples of revival, because in both of them, what was the natural outcome, the normal outcome of peoples being just swept away by the Spirit of God? It was what? Prayer. Massive, continuous prayer. And I'm telling you, that does not describe us. As Calvary Bible Church. Now as we get into Luke 11. We're going to be talking about prayer. And I want this to be something that is encouraging to all of us. I don't. You know I know how prayer is. And you just mentioned prayer. And our ears go back. And you know our tail tucks between our legs. And we start quivering. Because we know who prays enough. How many people you think you pray too much? Raise your hand. Where are they? You see, we're all, we don't praise like we should or as much as we should or in the way we should. So it's convicting. I've got that. And you know, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) And it's like cayenne pepper. A little bit goes a long way. And so my, my, my hope is that, yes, If there's sin areas in your life concerning prayer, that you confess those to God. But more importantly, that this series that we're embarking on just changes you, helps you, encourages you, and thrills you as a believer. Now, we don't really know the context of Luke 11, it's like the last part of chapter 10. Luke doesn't give it enough data to really pinpoint it. It just, so that's enough of that. But the entire chapter might divide it up into two sections. If you, if you were to look, and we don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you read cha- verses 1 through 13, it talks about the kingdom of God, and then the second half talks about the kingdom of Satan. So those are kind of two big divisions. Within the kingdom of God division, verses 1 through 13, the kingdom of God is focused around prayer or is discussed in relationship to prayer. There are examples teaching us to pray, instructions teaching us to pray, instructions to persevere in prayer, prayer, 
encouragements to motivate us to pray. And all of this is found in these first 13 verses of chapter 11, which I don't know how long it's going to take, but we are going to work through here. And we're going to learn from Jesus how to pray. So look at verse 1 of chapter 11 and follow along. I'm just going to look at the first three or first four verses and we'll stop there even though we aren't even going to get close to finishing them. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, from this text, um, we are going to encounter three exhortations about prayer to begin with. That Jesus gives us to instruct us in the proper way to address our Heavenly Father, the way that gives Him glory according to His will. Now, what we have recorded in Luke 11, 1 through 4 is a shortened version of basically the same prayer that appears in Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. In Matthew chapter 9 or 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives this prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is about a year later, our text, and Jesus gives the prayer again in relationship to the disciples, asking him a question, teach us how to pray. So though the prayers are very similar, and though they are both used by Jesus to instruct us how to pray, one has in its context the Sermon on the Mount, the other in a private conversation that the disciples have come up to him. Now, as I was reading, you probably were tempted to insert a few phrases which aren't in Luke, right? Because you know the prayer of Matthew so well, most people do, and it's very poetic, and it has these nice little couplets in there. I mean, it's very structured and flowy that we just kind of want to say, you know, our father instead of just father. And then we, we want to say, who art in heaven? But it's not there. And then we want to say, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, which, which isn't there. And we want to fill in these pieces. But Luke leaves them out. Now you may think, oh, that's too bad. Because those phrases are good and I'm sure they have some goodies in them. Well, it's not that bad. And this is why. Let me just give you a quick comparison, explain. Matthew does say our father. Luke just says father. And that's fine because when somebody's your father, he is our father. I mean, you know, he belongs to you if he's your father. So really nothing's missing there. Matthew's version also adds who is in heaven. And of course, everybody knows that God the father is in heaven. So that doesn't really tell us anything we don't have in Luke Both have hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Luke ends with that. Matthew adds, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet really to ask that God kingdom come is really to ask that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we really aren't missing anything. Again, the extra phrase in Matthew just is kind of a, a nice little explanation of what the key thing is, the kingdom come. And it's just that, but we aren't missing out because in thy kingdom come includes all of that and more. Matthew has give us this day, our daily bread. Luke has give us each day, our daily bread. And those slightly different ones seems to be talking about kind of a single day, another like every day in the future. They're both essentially saying the same thing. Matthew has forgive us our debts. Luke thankfully interprets that and lets us know it means forgive us our sins and then uses debts after that. Matthew's version continues, as we also have forgiven our debtors, while Luke records, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Uh, Both phrases are pretty much saying the same thing. 
Both versions have, lead us not into temptation, Matthew adds, but deliver us from evil. But really, to not be led into temptation is to be delivered from evil. So there's not really anything added there. Most translations in, of Matthew's prayer do add the phrase, and if you have uh, one of the more literal translations of the Bible, maybe uh, you know a study Bible, uh, RSV, or maybe NASB, or something like that. I don't know, know if the NIV has it, but you might see a footnote or brackets there where Matthew's also concludes with the classic, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Which doesn't appear in any of the ancient manuscripts. Sorry. Even Origen, who was a fanatic translator of ancient manuscripts in the very early church, who put together one of the great works that was burnt up at Constantinople in the fire when the city was sacked, which all linguists regret, um, wrote what was called the hexaglot, which was basically a parallel version in six languages. And he said that of all the manuscripts he knew of, that phrase was not in any of the ancient ones. So that said, Luke's prayer is shorter, but it's just as comprehensive. It's just as comprehensive. So don't think we're going to miss anything because we're not. Now, the Lord's Prayer, some call it, or the Disciples' Prayer, which is probably more accurate, teaches us some important, critical forms and functions of prayer. And and it's really the Disciples' Prayer, because the disciples have come to Jesus saying, teach us how to pray, and and this isn't really Jesus' prayer, the prayer that Jesus prayed, because he would never pray this prayer, because it says, forgive us our sins, and Jesus never sinned. So it's really the prayer from Jesus to the disciples. So the disciples' prayer is probably a little bit more accurate way to refer to it. It is incredibly dense with information and implications of that information, though the words are pretty much fairly simple. Now, you know, you may think I've gotten over this. You know, I've been preaching for about 20 years now. And and whenever I, I decide that I'm only going to preach a sermon on a couple little words or phrases... I kind of get a little anxious at the beginning of the week. So I think, well, I wonder if I should actually tell them that's what I'm going to preach on. Because if I, if I do that, I, I might not have enough things to say. (laughs) See, that's, I I always kind of think, I wonder if, I wonder how much is here. I wonder how much I can find embedded in this passage. And even though many times I've preached on a single word for an hour, preached you know six sermons on a half a verse um you 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 always kind of wonder because you know you you hate to just you know be in the flow and everybody's waiting for you know the full meal deal and i just shut it down after 15 minutes and say so i ran out but i am telling you this is loaded i i was just shell shocked by how much is here. I mean, I had, I knew this. I'd kind of, you know, studied it a little bit and heard some sermons on it. But now I understand why people have written whole books on this. It is just so great. And Friday afternoon late, it was, well, I guess it was about, it was evening. It was 6 p.m. And my wife called me and she said, are, are you coming home? <laughs> and I'm telling you, I was in the third heaven. I was just in the zen of studying. I was just so, okay. Sometimes I just forget everything. And I just, as soon as everybody leaves and the office gets quiet, it's like, oh, yes. And I just want you to know that this is going to just totally bless you. I, I know it well. I just, I am so happy for you. Because if you get anything out of this, even close to what I've gotten out of this, it is just going to, you're just going to leave thinking, this is so good. Now, the disciples' prayer given to them by Jesus tells us who we are to pray to and what we are to ask for. Those are kind of the two major divisions. And then within what we are to ask for, is that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that he would supply our daily needs, that he he would forgive us our sins and help us to forgive the sins of others. 
and that he would make sure that we were not led into temptation. It seems pretty easy and you're thinking, okay, we can go home now, not on your life. Now, when looking at the request, um, you can see some incredible details in Jesus's answer. And I just, I just have to tell you these things because they were just there and they, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of giving you like this big pile of mixed salad, but just think about this. When you think about the prayer, the first part of the prayer is about our vertical relationship with God, our, you know, father, father who is in heaven, this, this God who is in heaven. That is about us and God. The latter part of the prayer talks about our horizontal relationships with other people, you know, forgiving them as they sin against us. So encompassed in the prayer are the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. It's so great. And it's just right there. And you might even say that the first part of the prayer is about worshiping God. And the second part is about our meeting our daily needs. Or the first is about the kingdom of God. And the second is about kingdom living. Or the first part is about the greatest commandment. Love God. And the second, love your neighbor. All of that is just in this prayer, just by way of cool information. And it's also important to note that this prayer is not a form prayer, a formula prayer. It's not some prayer that Jesus is saying, listen, here's the magical prayer. And all you got to do is whenever you need something from God, you put these prayer tokens in the cosmic vending machine and then out pops the junk food that you want. This isn't, this isn't how you manipulate God. This isn't how you finally, after a time, have figured out that when you really want God to get you what you want, you throw this prayer down at him. And he's got to believe it. He's got to respond because after all, this prayer is in fact Jesus' prayer and you can never say no to Jesus. That's not what it's about. We know it's not a formula prayer for two primary reasons. One is that Jesus says prayer in Luke 11 isn't identical to Matthew 6. And if it was kind of the formula prayer that you had to pray, they would be identical, but they're not. Secondly, in all the prayers in Acts and all the prayers and all the epistles of the New Testament and the book of Revelation, it's never prayed. But all the prayers that are prayed contain these vital elements found in this prayer. So we know it is the pattern of prayer or a model prayer or the, a prayer that teaches us proper perspective in prayer. And yes, it's okay to pray it, but don't think that if you pray this 100 times, God's going to finally say, all right. Or that if you have something you want from God, you're going to think, well, I'm going to throw the disciples prayer on there. And man, that's according to the will of God. And he's going to give me what I want. Now, secondly, I want you to realize that as we look at this, yes, it's not a formal prayer, but I want you to see as we look at this, that the the principles in this prayer that we're going to be eking our way through are the principles that make prayers acceptable to God. They make them acceptable to God. Now, if you have been here since the beginning of Luke, you may have remembered, you know, back when we were in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Maybe you don't. But whether you were here or not, I would encourage you to listen to two sermons that were preached on prayer at that time. One is called Sneak Away to Pray. The other is called The Purpose of Practice of Prayer because those two sermons talk about the mechanics of prayer and how prayer works with a God who has already determined the ends from the beginning. I mean, why pray if all of that has already been decided by God? Okay, if you want to know that question, you want to know the mechanics of prayer, how prayer works, then listen to those two sermons. They're online. You can get them from the office. Sneak away to pray the purpose and practice of prayer because I'm not going to cover those things again, except just briefly. 
Whenever I'm preaching in a book, what I try and do is say, well, these themes, prayer is a major theme of Luke. So I'm going to encounter prayer over and over again. So when I hit each passage on prayer, I want to build upon what I've already said, not say the same thing over and over again. And so please listen to those as it will help you have an understanding and really help inform your understanding of what we're looking at in Luke Now, it's God's desire that all of us as individuals be devoted to prayer. I think we all know that. I think that's like, no, duh. We all need to be praying. I think we all realize that we could do a better job. I think we all realize that prayer is not the fire alarm that we only pull the handle on when there's an emergency in our life, though we often use it and only in that way. Secondly, it is also obvious that it's God's desire that Calvary Bible Church be a place committed to group prayer. That we often have group prayer. Now, what's interesting in Matthew's version of the prayer, Jesus in preaching in the context talks about, you remember what he says? But when you pray, enter into your prayer closet and pray to your heavenly father where? In secret. And so it seems like in that prayer, Jesus is emphasizing individual prayer in secret before God. Here in Luke, though we can't be certain, all the pronouns he uses are all plural. When you plural pray, say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us plural Each day, our, plural, daily bread, and so on. It's all plural. So it seems like the emphasis in Luke is a little bit more towards corporate prayer, but both prayers are essentially the same. So whether you're praying in private, whether you're praying corporately in a group, you need to have these same principles governing your prayer. Now, my fear for Calvary Bible Church is this, that we are going to forget God, and I think we already have to a degree. Because I think we would be praying more if we loved God and were depending upon Him more. Now, you remember in in Deuteronomy, there is this warning that appears over and over again. Do you remember what that warning is? Let me just give you an example of it. Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12. Let me just read this. They're about ready to enter the promised land. They're going to have incredible blessing. God's going to finally bring them into the land that they've been trying to get into for 40 years. And this is what Moses says. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, and houses full of all goods, which you did not fill, and hewn sisters, which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And that appears over and over again. And did you see this is the basic principle? That when Israel was in the desert and they had no option and they would starve if manna didn't fall from heaven every day, they would run out of clothing if their clothing didn't wear out. They would get scorched in the sun if a big canopy of cloud didn't cover them during the day and it'd be dark in the desert if there wasn't a pillar of fire by night. If God hadn't brought them water out of the rock and quail and things to provide for their every need. That all made them continually depend upon God. And now God was sending them into a land of just incredible blessing. And they were going to enjoy all this blessing. And he says, I just want you to know, beware. Because as soon as we get blessed... Like Calvary Bible Church has been blessed with people coming to the Lord and people growing in their faith and people giving and just great things happening. As soon as that starts happening, we can begin to become satisfied, not in God, but in God's blessing. And we can become content with the things God provides rather than God himself. And when we sit back and we say, Oh, aren't we doing well? 
And look at all the programs we have and look at the people who are being baptized and look at the people who are being saved. And is this not Babylon the great that we have built? We have forgotten the Lord. Instead, when God blesses us, we need to then realize that to whom more is given, more is required. And that when God gives us more, it's dead. When God gives us more, you could fix that. It's all right. Um, When God gives us more, it requires that we seek him more diligently because the blessing of God is a call to pray harder because God has blessed us more. Not to forget about the Lord or to trust or be satisfied in the blessings themselves, but to praise and thank the God who gives the blessings. And you know what happened to Israel? They moved into the land, they conquered the enemies, they settled down, enjoyed the vineyards and cisterns and orchards and houses filled with stuff. And they were satisfied in those things. And they forgot about the Lord. And by the time you get to Judges, the theme verse of Judges is, there was no king in Israel, which of course there was, the Lord God, but they had totally forgot about him. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was total anarchy, chaos, and sin when God blessed them super abundantly. And it is my fear that we as Calvary Bible Church, as God is pouring out this blessing upon us, conversions, spiritual growth, building project, programs, and all these things, that instead of driving us to our knees and making us realize, man, we've got to swim against the current here. We've got to go against complacency here. We need to pray harder, pray more, trust God, praise him and draw close to God that we will draw back. And then this is what happens. God says, well, since I'm not getting your attention through my word, then comes the paddle of circumstances. If he can't get your attention through his word, he uses circumstances. And man, it's painful. And then he will bring some catastrophe upon us as a church or as a city or as a nation. And then we will be clinging to God, won't we? I mean, think of the times you really cling to God when things are really bad and when you don't know what to do and you can't do anything and you're at the end of your rope and you realize the only way out, the only person who can do anything about it is God. And so you're just clinging to him. Help me, help me. Well, that's how we're to be all the time. And yet when blessing comes, we tend to, yeah, God's out there. And then we use God as the fire alarm. We see the red Switch on the wall, which if an emergency comes into our life, we'll run over there and ding, 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 I'm here and I need something. That That's not what, what God wants. He wants a life devoted to prayer. And it is my desire, it is God's desire to see Calvary Bible Church be known as a church of prayer. Where we have prayer in the morning and prayer during the service and prayer after the service and prayer during the week and individual prayer and corporate prayer and prayer, prayer, prayer. Okay, that's my Martin Luther King speech. I have a dream. All right. Now, I just had to get that off my chest so you know where we're going and what we're trying to achieve in this and what I'm praying for. And I hope you pray along with me. Point one, follow Jesus' example and pray. Look at verse one. And it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, just stop there. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because I covered Jesus' example as a man of diligent prayer in those two previous sermons I mentioned from Luke 5.16. But everybody knows that Jesus would often escape to pray. He would go to a mountain. He'd go to a lonely place, a stone throw away. But he would get away. 
he would get away so he could pray uninterrupted. You have a young lady who's in college, let's say, and she's with four other roommates who are having a great time together and her boyfriend calls her on her cell phone. Now, is she going to sit there in the midst of her three cackling girlfriends, roommates, and talk to her boyfriend? Not in your life. She's going to get up and she's going to go find some place where she won't be interrupted while she talks to her boyfriend. Well, that's what we need to do as Christians. That's what Jesus did. That is his example. That when Jesus wanted to talk to the Father, he would get up and go someplace away from the cackling of the world and society and the disciples. And my question to you is, are you doing that? And again, I'm not trying to heap any huge guilt on you. You're probably already thinking, oh, no, should I even come the next four weeks? Maybe I can go to a different church. Um, (laughs) Listen, if you're not spending time in prayer, you need to confess that sin to God and just say, Lord, I'm not I'm not praying like I should. And I just want to confess this to you. And this is what I want you to do. If you're not spending time with God in prayer on a regular basis, a time alone, I don't care where it is, what your routine is or what time it is, just commit to 10 minutes a day. Could you do that? Just 10 minutes a day. That's all. I mean, that's three commercials. Okay? Three commercials. Maybe just hit the mute and bow your head in between whatever. Set an alarm and just 10 minutes, just 10 minutes in between programs or something. I mean, anything, just 10 minutes. And I want you to do that because I want you to develop a pattern of setting aside undistracted time to the Lord. And once you get the pattern established in your life that every single day I pray for 10 minutes, then you can stretch it out to 12 Or 15, the pattern is the hard thing to get started. Once you get the pattern started, then you can expand the time and how you pray. And we're going to figure out how to do that. So I want you to try and get your 10 minutes in, at least if you aren't doing that. Moving on. Second point, be willing to learn how to pray. Notice in the middle of verse 1. We read after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now, several of the disciples, and we don't know who they are. Maybe they're part of the 70. Maybe they're part of the 12. We don't know. It doesn't say. Have been watching Jesus pray from a distance. And you can just imagine their conversation probably went something like this. Um, He's been over there a long time. I know. Yeah, and have you noticed that whenever he prays, he just he's, he's always kind of just rocking. It's like he's got a gut ache or something. It's like he's got so much passion that when he's praying, he's just he's just it's like his life depends upon it. And then another one says, "I know, isn't that convicting? Do you do that?" "No, I don't do that." And often he gets up when it's still dark. I mean, it's in the middle of the night. I get up early and sometimes when I get up and it's just light outside, he's just returning from prayer after being gone for who knows how long. I know it's convicting. And then another finally says, well, I know what I'm going to do. When he comes back, I'm going to ask him to teach us how to pray like he does. And that's what's happening here. They want to know. How to pray. They even bring up this thing with John. As John disciples were taught how to pray by John. What's that about? Well, commentators, people who know more than I do, say that it could be one of two things. One is is that at that time, rabbis often created prayers that their little discipleship group would pray. So if I was a rabbi, I would write out this prayer, maybe a series of prayers, and I would teach my disciples to memorize that. And that's the that's the prayer or prayers they would pray. And those prayers would then distinguish them as my disciples because they prayed the Jack Hughes prayer. And it could be that these disciples, knowing that John the Baptist actually taught his 
disciples a form of prayer now are asking Jesus, could you give us the Jesus disciple prayer? Or it just could be that John taught his disciples in general how to pray and that's what they're asking. Regardless of the motive, the lesson that you want to learn here is the disciples wanted to learn how to pray. And my question to you is, is do you want to learn how to pray? Terry L. Johnson, in his excellent work on the disciples' prayer, and I would encourage you, all of you, to read it. It's very simple, very wonderful, very good. It's called, When Grace Comes Alive. He says this, quote, It matters to God how we pray to him. Again, one might have thought that the truly important thing is that we pray just so long as we are sincere, so long as we try, so long as we pray on occasion, that's all that matters. Given how busy and distracted we are, God should be pleased that we find time to pray at all. He's not. He's not pleased with any concept of himself which we might have. He's not pleased with any prayers that we might offer. He might, we might think that it ought not to matter to God, but it does. He is not pleased to receive any scraps of religious interest that we might offer him. He requires that we think of him rightly and that we approach him rightly. Consequently, we must be taught. We need instruction, end quote. That is so right on. God doesn't accept every prayer. You know, when the the 9-11 thing happened and all the people in the nation were praying, most of those prayers were not heard by God, were not accepted by God. When an unbeliever prayers, God does not hear the prayer of the wicked, period, unless it's a prayer of repentance and faith in Christ. And he doesn't hear a lot of the prayers of Christians because they don't pray according to his will. They don't even know what his will is, and that's why we're doing this series. We need to make an effort to learn how To pray so that our prayers are not just those same things we do over and over again and we're kind of just get stuck in a rut and, you know, God's neat, let's eat, which is the hungry man's prayer. God is good. God's great. Thank you for this food. Amen. Mm. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord to settle to keep. If God's for awake, pray the Lord to settle to keep. Amen. Else, little prayerettes. For little occasions that we can just throw out there. And you know, in some respects, prayer comes naturally to a Christian. If, if you grew up in a Christian home and you came to Christ at an early age, you probably don't have this experience. But those of you who came to Christ later, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, there, there was before you came to Christ, you lived in a world where a lot of times you never even thought of God. You didn't even care about God. You'd go whole days and never even think about God. And then through a series of circumstances, you came to understand Christ. You came to understand that he died on the cross for your sins, that you're a sinner, that he's holy. He's going to punish you unless you repent of your sins, turn from them, and place your faith in Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection alone to save you. You committed your life. You were saved. You were born again. And what happened? God was everywhere. You're driving around. All you do is think of God. Do you remember that? You're just driving down the road and all you can think of is, oh, God, this is great. Oh, help me not to crash that person. Help me not to yell at that person. No, help me not to do this. And when I do this and when I do that and, and pretty soon now you have this God consciousness. It's normal. That's what happens when you receive the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you're born again. All of a sudden you have this experience where in your life you're aware of God and God is just seems like he's everywhere. And you're taking a little teaspoon of information of what you know from the Bible and you're comparing it with everything in life. You remember that? And then a lot of times after a time, what happens is, is that excitement, that thrill can begin to wear off if we don't have somebody discipling us and teaching us how to practice the godly disciplines of, of prayer and Bible reading and meditation and study and corporate worship and serving and evangelism and all those different disciplines God gives us to maintain the fires of our life, and especially devotions with God, which we talked about last week, the one thing necessary. And this is what Paul describes when he's talking about praying without ceasing. Remember when he talks about, you know, pray without ceasing? I mean, you think about what does that mean? 
Does that mean we, you know, get in the corner of our living room and turn our, you know, face to the corner and get out our prayer journal that looks like the, you know, the, the phone book and we just go through it forever and that's all we do and waste away there praying, praying, praying without ceasing? No, it means having a continual consciousness of God so that as we're doing our work, we're saying, Lord, help me do a good job here. Help me be a good witness here. Help me to walk with you here. Help me to be, you know, a light in, in my community and my job and my house and good mom, good dad, whatever, wherever you're at, wherever you're driving, eating, sleeping, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. You're all thinking of God. You're letting God permeate your life. Now, as you wake up in the morning, the first thought is, Lord, do you have that experience? And then as you get up and, you know, you're taking your shower, Lord, and as you're eating breakfast, Lord, and as you're brushing your teeth, Lord, and as you're getting ready, Lord, and as you're driving to work, Lord, and as you get there, it's Lord, and you're just talking to God, you're asking him, you're praising him, you're thinking about him all day long. Do you have that experience? You, you should. That is normal, basic Christianity. And if you don't have that, then something's wrong. You don't know Christ or there's sin in your life or you've just developed bad habits or you've never been discipled correctly. But there should be this constant desire to pray. And that just comes with, with salvation, with having a relationship with God. But having said that, that's not enough. Though salvation causes us to be aware of God and makes us want to talk with God and gives us this closeness with God that we've never had before, it's a thrill and it's wonderful. It's not enough. Jesus tells us in this text, there is a way to pray. Other texts tell us there is a way to pray that pleases God and ways to pray that don't please God. And so as you grow in your walk, you need to learn how to pray. And so if you're a Christian, hopefully that is your desire. I mean, some people have, you know, developed little methods like, you know, the Acts method, method where, you know, the each letter stands for, you know, adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication, which is a kind of a good little thing. But it's only good if it conforms to the word of God, not if it works for you. It must conform to the word of God. Jesus must have a say over our prayer life. And so if you're truly born again, you want to learn how to pray. Having said that, thirdly, we are to pray to our heavenly father. Look at verse two. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. Now, I just want to make a note here. Jesus has been asked to teach the disciples to pray. And I just want to make this little tiny distinction here, which I think is important. And that is this. The disciples have not come to Jesus saying, can you give us some information so we can leave with information about how to pray? They're coming to Jesus saying, teach us to engage in prayer. We want to do it. We want to do prayer. That's what they're after. They want to do prayer. And I know that may sound like splitting hairs, and it is, but it's a very important hair splitting. There's a whole difference between, you know, sitting in a classroom in high school, learning how the traffic laws are, and then driving the car in the traffic. They're not saying, teach us to pass the driver's exam. They're saying, we want to drive. We want to pray like you pray. That's what they're after. Disciples wanted to learn to pray like Jesus prayed. And look at the first thing they are to say. Jesus says, when you pray, and now you would just imagine what's going through their mind right now. They know all these rabbi prayers. They know all these things in Judaism. And what, what is it that they're really looking for right now? What, 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 are they, what do you think Jesus is going to say? And they're thinking, oh, what's he going to tell us? And Jesus says, Father, and I'm telling you, their jaws dropped when he said this. They were hammered by this statement. You think, well, why? Because in the Old Testament, get this, God is referred to as Father 14 times. In 39 books, three-fourths of the Bible. 
In every one of those instances, he is the father of the nation or the father of all creation. Never does anyone ever refer to God as father directly, except in prophecies that talk about the father's relationship to God the son. And Jesus says, now, when you pray, say, Father. Now, you need to know that when he says this, he is saying the equivalent of the Aramaic Abba, Daddy. And you think, are you sure? Yeah. As a matter of fact, if you went to Israel today and wandered around the streets and listened to kids speaking in some language you didn't understand, talking to their dads, you would hear them say Abba today. It's still being used. It is the standard term that any child who wants to address their dad uses. Now, this is just radical. It is radical. Follow me here. Paul in Romans chapter 8 verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul says here. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Paul knew what Jesus was saying and said, when you go to God, since he's your father, if you're saved, your heavenly father, speak to him that way. Because he is. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Amazing. Amazing. It's amazing for this reason. Because God the Father obviously has a special relationship with Jesus. Jesus being God the Son. And in the New Testament... Just in the Gospels alone, not the whole New Testament, only in the Gospels, Jesus refers to Father over 60 times, personally. And he says, here it is. This is how we all are to address God. I want you to address God like I address God. And I want you to say, Dad, Father. Is that radical? I tell you, the Jews, they wouldn't even say the name of God. They wouldn't say Yahweh. Instead, they would substitute the name or Adonai in place of that. And now here Jesus says, when you pray, say, and out comes this shell shocker. Just say, Father. That is amazing. Because the Jews... Never had this concept of God. God was high. He was exalted. He was lifted up. He was mighty. He was distant. He was transcendent. And Jesus is saying, but when you pray, since you're a child of God, you come before the throne of grace and you say, Father, I want you to address him just like you would your father, since he is your father. Since through faith in me, you are a child of God. You are my brother and sister in Christ. And we have equal standing before God the Father through me. Is that just radical? That because you have placed your faith in Christ, you are adopted in the family of God, and God now through Christ makes you perfect, and so you can approach God Almighty, the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and you can approach Him, and you can just talk to Him. Rudolf Boltmann, who's a German theologian from the Lutheran persuasion who had some bad views on the Gospels and Bible authority and inspiration, did accurately observe this. He he observes the great contrast in the disciples' prayer with the common prayers of Jesus' day 
And Boltman contrasted, quote, ornate, emotional, often liturgically beautiful, but often overloaded forms of address and Jewish prayers with the stark simplicity of father. The prayer of the 18 petitions, which as a side note, is a prayer that during the first century were developed these 18 prayers that Jews were to pray. The prayer of 18 petitions, for instance, which devout Jew is expected to say three times a day daily begins, Lord God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, our shield and the shield of our fathers. End quote. Jesus just says, set all that aside. All the Abraham, all the Isaac, the Jacob, most high, shield, just go for father. Boltman goes on to say, quote, God is near. He hears and understands the requests which come thronging to him as a father understands the requests of his own child, end quote. What comes to your mind when you think of God anyways? I mean, you know, granted, we aren't too... You know, God is spirit and we aren't to make idols of him. But what, what comes to your mind? What comes to your thoughts? When you, when you go to your heavenly father, what's there? What's there? Who are you talking to anyways? What is your picture, your mental picture, your mental thoughts about God? Do you picture him as you would a loving father? If not, you've got the wrong picture. You've got the wrong picture. Or you're called to call God Father, which is a term that is very intimate and very close and very personal and easily accessible like any father. We need to make sure, though, that we don't anthropomorphize God. Somebody came up after last service and said, could you say that word again? Anthro meaning man, po meaning towards, morphize to morph, to morph God into man's image. We aren't to take sinful or qualities that are unworthy of God and foist them upon him. Nevertheless, God wants us to approach him as easily as and talk to him since he isn't like a father to us. He is our father. We are his children. If we're saved, he is our heavenly father. It's not like he's like a father. He is a father. He's not like a sinful human father, but he is a perfect father. Remember Jesus in John 14, 19, when Philip came to him and said, show us the father. Do you remember what Jesus said? He, Jesus said to him, I have been, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say show us the father? I mean, get a life, Philip. Don't you know that God is spirit? That the heavens and the highest of heavens cannot contain him? That no man has seen God at any time, but God has sent me forth to be clothed in humanity. So that as much as God as can be pictured in human flesh, you have seen All of my teachings are from the Father. All of my works are from the Father. All of my character are from the Father. And so when you see me, you're seeing as much of the Father as anybody has ever seen. So what do you mean, show us the Father? What are you looking for? He's invisible. And I am the exact representation of his nature. That's amazing. And Jesus is saying... Our thoughts of God need to be of a father. Now, a lot of you have bad experiences growing up. Granted, your dad, your father was absent and or wicked. He didn't have a close relationship. He didn't have a loving relationship. And maybe you're thinking, well, when I think of father, I think of bad, mean, absent, gone, harsh, whatever. Those are the kind of anthropomorphisms we should never foist onto God because he is none of those things. When you look in the pages of scripture, which is what you need to do to learn what your heavenly father is like, you will learn that he is perfectly loving, perfectly compassionate, perfectly gracious towards you. And he just loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you. What more could he give? 
You know, like Paul says in Romans, he who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? I mean, doesn't he promise there that God is going to cause all things to work together for good? And this is the one you were to go to and say, Father. Imagine having a very close loving about, you know, as perfect a human father as you can. Just a dad when you were growing up who spent time with you, taught you things, encouraged you, gave you sound wisdom, taught you about the Lord, the Bible, you know, helped you through school, helped you through college. Your close, great, loved, fun dad. That you've just had so many great memories about. He was just such an excellent dad. And all of a sudden you get a phone call. He's had a stroke. A massive stroke. And you go to the hospital. And he can't speak. And the doctor says, you know, he's all there. He understands what we're saying right now. He can't speak. That part of his brain is shot. But he can hear everything you say. And so you sit down. And what do you say to him? That's what Jesus is talking about. You tell him, as you come day by day, Dad, how you doing? He doesn't answer. Yeah, this is what I did today, and this is what I'm thinking of doing, and maybe going to this. What do you think? Well, you're talking with you're talking with your dad. You're talking with your earthly father. You're having a conversation. There's no fear there. There's no terror there. You're, you're having a conversation with him. He, he loves you. You're his child. Of course he wants to hear. And as he lays there unable to speak to you, you're pouring your heart out to him. Well, take that part and realize that there's nothing wrong with God. And he's not injured and he hasn't had a stroke. And in his love and in his compassion, he's already chosen you. He's already saved you. And he has bent his all-powerful will to do you good, to grant you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ for all eternity, that when you ask for a rock, he's not getting, or a, a, a bread, he's not going to give you a rock or a snake, he's not going to dump bad things on you, only good things, all good things, forever good things, and he has that for you, he loves you, and he just says, talk to me. And that's what he's looking for. And what do you tell him? You just tell him about your life. You tell him about what you're struggling with. You ask him for things because he has unlimited resources. And you want to please him. You thank him for all that he's done for you and is doing for you and will do for you. That's it. That's it. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are you... Are you following Jesus' example and getting away to pray? And if you aren't, go for the 10 minutes. And I'm not saying this because we're going to do this for a week and then you don't have to because it's the beginning of a greater thing that should last till you die. Secondly, do you want to learn how to pray? And if you do, then you pray. That's how you begin. You learn from the scriptures and keep coming and we'll, we'll learn together from Jesus and finally, when you pray, do you, you, do you picture God, do you imagine God as your father, as your close, loving, perfect, heavenly, just, merciful, kind father? Now, what we're going to do right now is we're going to close in prayer. And, and, you know, a lot of times they say, you know, bow your heads. And you know why we do that? Because that's kind of a, a way to get to that secret place and pray when there's a whole bunch of people around. You don't have to look at that person with the weird, you know, cow look in the back of their head or yeah the dandruff on their shoulder or whatever um so what we're going to do is we're just going to to just pray right now and i just want you to bow your heads right now and this is what i want you to think about uh just imagine that right now you're in heaven you're in heaven and And there Jesus is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And you see him there sitting on his radiant and glorious throne. And it's just brightness and it just goes on. And you're you're seeing Jesus there and he's looking at you and he's got a smile on his face. 
And he says, come closer. And you do. And he looks at you and he says, my father wants you to talk to him now. My father wants you to talk to him. And all of a sudden, Jesus disappears. And there's no angels. There's no other believers. You're just in heaven. You're all alone. And you know that Jesus wants you to talk to your heavenly father because you're a child of God. And Jesus has told you that he wants you to talk to him. And so right now, you're going to talk to him. So do that just, just for a few moments. Just talk to him. And Father, we, we come before you right now as your children sinners saved by grace and father we we like this we like to be in your presence and be still and know that you are god that you love us that you are intimate with us that you you want to do us good you want to hear from us you want us to talk to you and to ask you for things and thank you for things and praise you for things and and Father, I just, uh, I pray that each person right now, as they're just in their mind's eye in heaven all alone, just thinking, talking, praying, that they would realize that this is good. This is exactly what you want us to do. And you want us to do this every day, multiple times a day if possible, just to come before you and and just put everything else aside and just have a relationship with you. As we meditate on your word, as we think about your goodness to us and have a relationship with you. And Father, we're going to close in prayer now, but Father, may each person here leave realizing they need to just spend time with you in prayer to make it a habit to have private prayer to engage in corporate prayer that you might be the center of our lives not the things that you give us father we pray all of these things in your precious name amen